This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. In 1906, James Joyce wrote a letter to his brother Stanislaus. Uh, Joyce is living at this time in, in Rome, and he has just read a short story by Thomas Hardy called On the Western Circuit. And the story involves a lawyer who seduces a servant while he's out on the road. And when he returns home, he begins to receive a series of beautiful letters written by the servant, and they impress him so much that he decides to marry her. And only later on, when uh, the husband asks his new wife, uh, can you please write a letter to so-and-so, I know that you write such wonderful letters, does the whole thing uh, come out. And uh, Joyce's response to this to his brother is, uh, he says, is this as near as Thomas Hardy can get to life, I wonder. And when I first read that, when I was 18 or 19 or 20 or so, I had the same response as Joyce, of course, that that can't be. Uh, you can't be writing about real life using a plot like that. Nothing like that happens in real life. Um, and I was with him there. Joyce was very certain of himself in his early 20s. And I was, too, in my early 20s. But as I've gone along, I have changed my mind a bit. And I think it's worth noting just how far Joyce changed his own mind, too. All we have to do is remember that early in his life, not more than a few years before he wrote this letter to his brother, he also wrote to his brother saying that it was his aspiration in life to convert the bread of everyday life into literature, something along those lines. It's beautiful stuff. When I read that in high school, I was blown away that someone could take uh, the Catholicism that I grew up with and uh, turn it and use it for literature. It was incredible. But by the time you get to 1941, or I guess uh, the, the, the mid-20s until 1941, when Finnegan's Wake is published, I don't think that's what Joyce is doing anymore. And all you have to do is read the first page of Finnegan's Wake and ask yourself, is this as near as James Joyce can get to life? And then you have to wonder, is that still what he's trying to do at all? This is what Finnegan's Wake sounds like. River run past even atoms from swerve of shore to bend of bay brings us by a commodious vicus of recirculation 
back to Hoth Castle and environs. Sir Tristram, Violaire de Amores, fray over the short sea, had Passan Corby arrived from North Armorica, on this side the scraggy isthmus of Europe Minor, to wield or fight his peninsulate war. Nor had Top Sawyer's rocks by the stream of Coney exaggerated themselves to Lawrence County Gorgios, while they went doubling their mumper all the time, so on and so on. There's about 630 pages of jokes and puns of that kind. And there's the wonderful story told by James Joyce's wife, who is trying to sleep one night, and she says, uh, well, Jim is writing his book. I go to bed, and then that man sits in the next room, and he continues laughing about his own writing. And then I knock at the door, and I say, now, Jim, stop writing or stop laughing. And that is uh, at home with Jim and Nora in the late 1920s. There are clearly people who do find humanity in Finnegan's Wake, James Joyce most of all, it seems. Uh, but I think he knew that he was writing that book for a very, very select few. Uh, I would get more humanity out of his story, Araby, uh, from Dubliners than I would get out of anything from Finnegan's Wake. And realizing that has been I don't know, kind of a moving experience that, uh, that I don't need Joyce anymore, that what he taught me got me to a certain place and then I left him behind, and that what has stayed with me are the, uh, the patterns, the uh, cycles, the repeated plots, the uh, apparently naive plots, the, all, the, all the resources that folklore and mythology and nowadays, uh, police dramas or um, science fiction stories or horror movies, those kinds of stories rely upon rather than what we call uh, literary stories. I find myself relying more on the former than the latter. I don't see what literary artists are doing today as being uh, much else than uh, an academic exercise. I won't go on and on about that because the point of what I'm saying isn't to, to point out what I think is definitely better, but to just tell a story of how my preferences have changed over the years. There's another quotation by uh, an American novelist called John Hawkes, and he says, uh, he says this, I began to write fiction on the assumption that the true enemies of the novel were plot, character, setting, and theme, and having once abandoned these familiar ways of thinking about fiction, totality of vision or structure was really all that remained. And this is another thing, when I found it, I highlighted it, put stars around it, uh, memorized it, basically. But now, now I see that in many ways, when someone comes around and says that the enemies of the novel are plot, character, setting, and theme, while they might, while in certain cases they might actually feel that way, what I think they're really saying is that they are unable to write plot, character, setting, and theme. It's not as easy as it might appear from the more popular iterations of this kind of storytelling. 
And it's also strange to me, or just amusing, that when uh, writers and intellectuals come around to talking about how there are certain ways of speaking that uh, no longer no longer hold their weight. Uh, words can't express experience or opinions or anything of the kind, and so you have to learn of a new way to write. It's odd that they are able to explain that very clearly using basic everyday words, but when they turn their hand to trying to write a novel or a poem or a play, that is when language fails them and they have to make it uh, avant-garde or experimental. I've never really understood that. I found the same thing uh, looking at the novelists and playwrights and poets in the early 20th century around Vienna, where they have all these uh, manifestos about how uh, language uh, cannot uh, be used in the old-fashioned ways to explain modern life or express it or pin it down. Um, language has lost its, its expressive power and it can no longer coherently talk about the modern world or about uh, the feelings or the minds of modern people. And yet, uh, while, they're, while they're words, their creative words, their, uh, their poems and plays and novels try to reflect this chaos and this uncertainty, when you get to their manifestos or the things they say in interviews, they're able to say it uh, very clearly, uh, very explicitly, uh, using the words that apparently can't cohere around ideas anymore. So I don't buy that anymore. Um, and again, this is not to say that if you could uh, drag John Hawkes out of the grave, you should uh, beat him with a ruler and say, you don't understand. You should have gone and written plot, character, setting, and theme. You could probably have done it very well. I don't mean to do that. The whole point is to say that uh, for those creative people out there, and I know there are many, who want to write quote-unquote serious fiction or serious poetry, it's worth telling them that they don't have to do the prevailing intellectual thing of making it difficult or of making it complex or of basically making it into something that only five people will ever read. There are friends of mine who enjoy this part, enjoy this aspect, especially of poetry, that uh, poetry isn't popular anymore in a way that uh, it once was hundreds of years ago. And what that does is it leaves them the freedom to do whatever they want. No one's reading them, basically, other than other poets or other intellectuals. And so they can sort of do whatever they want with it. But for those of us who want to try to make serious art out of everyday life and to make serious art that can be experienced by everyday people, it is worth saying, quite simply, that that is still possible. One place where it is possible actually is in uh, nonfiction. You don't have to read Finnegan's Wake uh, to find much humanity, at least I don't. But you can certainly, as I have just indicated, you can read Richard Ellman's biography of James Joyce and 
just read the, the last third of the book or read uh, Joyce's letters that he wrote while writing Finnegan's Wake and you will find an immensely human story. Don't let anyone tell you that the only way to tell a human story is to make it so complex that hardly anyone will want to read it. Um, it, it just isn't true. Now, where do we go from there? Um, I have a lot of notes here, but I don't really need to mention very much of this at all. Uh, so I've, I've gone from that point to this one, from being someone who wanted to write like a portrait of the artist as a young man, to someone who now basically wants to, if he writes at all, uh, write with the clarity of a myth or of someone like the uh, British uh, or he would kill me for saying that. The Irish short story writer and novelist, William Trevor. I'll get to him at the very end. But I wanted to share first one quotation from uh, the poet Geoffrey Hill, who just died recently, a British poet. Now Joyce, you'll remember, was talking about Thomas Hardy uh, when he was 24 years old. I don't think Geoffrey Hill was 24, so I don't think he has much of an excuse for saying this. Um, if you consider that the avant-garde or the difficult poem has basically uh, held the table for a long time, for decades even, uh, and that I'm pretty sure Hill uh, worked, in a, worked in a university for most of his life, even if he constantly got the, the question, why are your poems difficult? Um, I don't know that he should have minded it so much. He was sort of uh, in the majority, I would think. But this was his answer, one of his answers about the difficulty of his poetry. He says, we are difficult. Human beings are difficult. We're difficult to ourselves. We're difficult to each other. And, excuse me, and we are mysteries to ourselves. We are mysteries to each other. One encounters in any ordinary day far more real difficulty than one confronts in the most intellectual piece of work. Why is it believed that poetry, prose, painting, music should be less than we are? Why doesn't music, why does poetry, have to address in simplified terms when if such simplification were applied to a description of our own inner selves, we would find it demeaning. I think art has a right, not an obligation, to be difficult if it wishes. And I'm glad he at least says uh, a right, but not an obligation. But this is someone who, he's doing the same thing I am here. Uh, his opinion and his, and his preference is, uh, when you're asked these questions, your opinions and your preferences come out sounding like dogmas. But it's worth saying that uh, up until, I don't know what, uh, up until a few hundred years ago, you have Greek tragedy, you have Shakespeare, you have Homer, you have the poetry and narratives, as I said, of the Hebrew Bible or of the Hindus, uh, Norse myth, Celtic mythology, uh, Ovid, um, the Roman playwrights, all of, you can you go on and on and on. Dante, they were 
written for and experienced by uh, everyday people, you would say. And they were able to, especially in the case you think of Homer or of the Greek tragedians or Shakespeare, they were able to see it and listen to it and comprehend it in a way that isn't possible with a great deal of poetry today. You need the book, you need to be able to reread it a hundred times, and even then you still might not get it. Um, there is something to be said for being able to tell a story that you can just listen to, and that sort of has become my goal these days, to try and see if I can do that. Now back in 2011, um, I had never heard of, of William Trevor before, and suddenly I heard a review of his collected, his collected stories. And this review was on, was on NPR, and I still remember exactly where I was and the time of night that it was when I heard this. Uh, the reviewer said, The stories collected here also compose a quietly devastating argument for the beauty and power of the short story form as a tool for cutting to the quick of human desire and vulnerability. Now I had been alienated from the publishing world for a while by then, and alienated by uh, most, uh, most contemporary writing by then, so I was struck and was actually surprised to hear that literary authors could still care so baldly and basically about simple humanity and get published. Uh, I do wonder if, if William Trevor had started out in the uh, 10 years ago instead of 1960, whether he would have been published at all. So I went looking for Trevor. Actually, before then, I can say that what I did in response to that was uh, it took about seven years, but I wrote 12 short stories that were collected in the book called The Lonely Young and the Lonely Old. And what I did in that book was just a series of monologues, different people, and I made sure that nothing dramatic ever happened. There were no births, there were no deaths. Um, just tried to find people in everyday life and let them speak. And that still, I think, was as it came off, even though they're still very moving to me, uh, it came off as probably more avant-garde than strictly human but it was something that was worth trying, and it got me to a point where I exhausted what I was trying to do. And then you come to, you come to last year, COVID, and I spent the year of COVID, and who knows if there, another one is on its way, but I spent the year of COVID writing a detective novel, and this is something that I never imagined being able to do. But suddenly there you are, doing uh, plot, character, setting, and theme. And it was a blast. It was as much fun as writing the experimental stuff was back in my 20s. And I found it was just a thrill to be creating characters, to trying to fit them into a story, fit them into a story that I knew was... Uh, part of detective fiction conventions and trying to make that work 
and trying to put humanity even into the expected scenes that you know are going to come. And it was an immense challenge, and I had a great time doing it. And it was the most fun even watching uh, the book sort of turn into sort of turn into a cone where I got to the end of it and I was still so attached to the characters and I wanted to keep going but I noticed that as I got closer and closer to the ending the opening for new material was narrowing and the plot itself was telling me you don't have any room to add any more characters or any more incidents or any more scenes you need to end this now and that is what I did and it was a, a remarkable experience So that even I know, personally now, that now that I'm writing uh, strictly uh, poetry based off of mythology and religious literature and science fiction and horror stories and detective novels, um, I see the value in that uh, more than I ever did before. And again, this is only a preference that I landed on, but it is a story that I think is worth telling. It's always... Uh, it's always struck me that when I was first reading about my heroes like, like Joyce or Elliot, um, what it seemed that they were escaping from was the bad Georgian rhyming poetry of like the 1880s or 1890s. But then you have a hundred years later and the thing that is exhausted and worn out is the avant-garde poetry the political poetry, the overtly political poetry, the, uh, the merely academic poetry, that's the thing that gets worn out. And so that it's worth going back to older forms and remaining curious and striving and always looking for that new way of doing things. And for me, the motivation to do that is simply what Joyce said, is this as near as Thomas Hardy can get to life? How closely can we bring life to the page? And, and how many different ways can we try to do it? I think it's a great uh, challenge to set yourself if you have the patience to do it. And so when we come back to William Trevor, make sure I covered everything here. So when I come back, yeah. When I come back to William Trevor, what I come back to as an example of what I mean by traditional, almost uh, pared back narratives, I go back to what Jeffrey Hill said, um, we're difficult, we're, we are mysterious to ourselves, we are mysteries to each other, life is difficult and writing must be difficult. And, and what I think of, actually not only just of William Trevor, I think of, uh, I've always thought of whoever it was that wrote the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think of whoever was living back there in Mesopotamia, basically believing that the air around him was saturated with divinity. And then I think of the, uh, if not scribes, just the popular storytellers who may have been around then, who, who carried the story of Gilgamesh to, uh, to the common people, you might say, where the story also lived. 
um, these people were also living in terrifying circumstances on the edge of survival, you might say, in the very first cities. Uh, they weren't having a great time, and yet the form of narrative and of narrative poetry that they found and that lasted and that did the most for them was simply what you would call a story, sitting around the fire telling a story. And it is so wonderful to think of that, that what if that is still possible? And then suddenly realizing, hey, it is possible. And if you are the type who thinks that you can do that too, rather than whatever prevailing fad for uh, hip novels might be, or hip poetry might be, go and do it. Do the thing that you know that you can. And for me, the best example of that right now uh, is William Trevor and his 2,000 pages of short stories and his dozen or so novels. But I'll just end with one paragraph from uh, one of his novels called Love and Summer. And again, with the, with, the, uh, with the words of Jeffrey Hill in our minds, we are mysteries to ourselves, we are mysteries to each other, uh, ordinary life and difficulty, uh, complexity, all of these things should yield uh, or uh, should yield a difficult art, right? And here is one paragraph from William Trevor. Uh, the novel is about a young woman who became an orphan as a young girl. She went to live with nuns uh, for her upbringing and later went to live at a farm and then married the widower who ran the farm. Now her husband is much older than she is, but she is happy to have what she does, given what circumstances have allowed her to even seek. And at some point, and this is the, the, the meat of the novel, uh, a young man shows up closer to her age and she, they fall in love, they have an affair, and the husband finds out. And the scene here is that they are in their kitchen and they've talked about it. And this is what happens. This is the paragraph. He didn't want to eat and nor did she. He went away and she heard the tractor again before he drove it to the fields. In the silent kitchen it came coldly to her that the, that the tragedy of a man who had taken her into his house was more awful by far than love's denial. It came like clarity in confusion. There was certainty. It was too late. And it came coldly, too, that the truth she yet might tell to draw the sting of his agony would cause more suffering than she could inflict, more than any man who had done no wrong deserved. Now, for my money, uh, when I was younger, I would have chosen uh, a paragraph, probably from Joyce somewhere. Now, that paragraph, most of the words there being one syllable, uh, I will take that to the bank day after day after day, never minding the politics of it, which we could go on and on about as well, uh, what social life, uh, what rural life was like in Ireland at the time. And that's the beautiful thing 
about stories like this isn't that they sidestep the politics, but that uh, they uh, supersede them. They make the experience of reading the story more important than what we would do today, which is uh, if someone wrote this story today, uh, you would almost be writing it to find out what the response would be on Twitter later. Uh, William Trevor has other things in mind here. So that is where I've ended up, from Joyce to William Trevor, from the avant-garde uh, trying to trying to scrape away the inner life of human beings and express them to not seeing a problem with retelling myths and uh, trying to tell simply human stories in a basically simple and human way. Do send me an email uh, that's always in the post description if you have any thoughts about this. I don't know if I've said this right. I don't know if I've said it good enough. This is, I think, the third or the fourth time I've tried to put this into words, and even now I don't want it uh, to end. But I think it's something that is worth trying to put into words, because after all, words still have the immense power that they always have had, no matter what many others would uh, try to tell you. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.